0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network. And as often as I can, I try to do an interview with somebody who has a book that is particularly interesting to me. In this case, it's Mark Bradley, whom I've had on the show before. So he's a repeat offender, so to say. And he's written a wonderful book called The World Reimagined, Americans and Human Rights, in the 20th century. So, Mark, let me welcome you back to the show.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back, Marshall. Thank you.
0: Could you begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself?
1: I uh, teach history at the University of Chicago, and I am also the director of
0: our Human Rights Center there as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have a long-standing interest in human rights. I know that. Yes. What moved you to write this book? Why did you write this book?
1: Well, the last time I was on the show, I had finished a book on the Vietnam War. And I was thinking about new projects and ended up at a conference on torture, which wouldn't necessarily be where you think (laughs) you'd have some kind of generative (laughs) idea about a new project. But it was the most interesting academic conference I had ever attended. And I suddenly realized that people were starting to write a history of human rights. And it's a field that has been dominated by legal people, public policy people, you know, there have been some anthropologists who have been working on human rights, but historians, this was about 10 years ago, were just starting to turn their attention to human rights. And it seemed really exciting to me to be able to be part of a field that didn't have a historiography. You know, when you write on Vietnam, there's, what, 2,000 books at least about the American War in Vietnam, plus articles, plus this and that, and suddenly be on kind of like you know, there was nothing that you necessarily had to react against. You just had to kind of think through the historical problem for yourself. I found that really intellectually exciting. Mm-hmm. And then the issues around rights themselves seemed, you know, increasingly compelling to me as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, both both things, I think, operating there.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yes. So let's begin to set the stage a little bit. Uh, So your book focuses on two periods in uh, the history of human rights. Uh, It's mostly about Americans, but it also pays a lot of attention to things that happened outside America. It focuses on the Mm -hmm. 1940s and 1970s. I don't remember the 40s, but I remember the 70s very well. And Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about the, I want to call it the prehistory, that is before the 40s, a history of human rights talk?
1: Well, and that's an interesting question, Marshall. Because I'm not so sure there's much of a prehistory, and that's <laughs> that's 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 controversial to say. Because some people will say to you, "Well, there's the Enlightenment. There's some, um, you know, the early modern Europe. They're talking about rights in one form or another." And I mean, all this is true, right? That rights talk is something that goes way, way back in time. To talk about human rights, and that's the frame that I want to use for the book. That's a language that comes very late in the day, really in the mid-20th century, it seems to me. And the difference between rights talk and human rights talk, I think, is the notion that there's a global dimension or a transnational dimension to the kinds of guarantees that individuals might have to the rights that they hold. So rather than the nation state necessarily being the adjudicator of people's rights, that there was some place that you could look to outside of the nation. Mm -hmm. That's the revolutionary thing that happens, I think, mid-century, and I think that's what human rights comes to mean over time, Mm -hmm. that it's a global language rather than a national language. Mm -hmm. So part of the book was trying to figure out in the early 1940s, as the United States is entering into World War II, suddenly the war aims that are articulated by Franklin Roosevelt and, and others, there's a lot of human rights talk. And yet, human rights would not have been a particularly familiar set of words to people. So it's a puzzle that people went there in some ways. But then it also means that there's a lot of kind of educative functions that are going on in the 1940s to kind of let people know what that might mean. And so the 40s part of the book is really trying to come to terms with how writers, artists, photographers, but also international legal people, began to put some flesh around what it meant to talk about rights in this more global kind of framework.
0: Mm-hmm. So just to play, I don't know if devil's advocate is the right expression here, but I was trained as an early modernist, and of course for early modernists, the French Revolution is important, declaration of, of the rights of man and citizen. It's important to say citizens because that's what it said. Um, how does that fit? So does that not fit into this history? or
1: It does fit into the history but it again, I think, well, you know, there's the universalism of the French declaration, right? So there's an imagined enlightened sort of universalism that's going on in the 18th century. What's happening mid 20th century is that universalism is trying to be concretized in various international declarations, covenants, institutions of one sort or another. It's one would have to say much more free floating in some ways in, in the 18th century. One parallel that I draw on a lot, though, in the book from the 18th century is Lynn Hunt's really wonderful work on rights talk in the era of the French Revolution. And one of the, I think, really critical arguments that, that Lynn makes is that it's the novel, and it's a very particular kind of novel in the 18th century, the epistolary novel, that allows people to begin to think with empathy in a larger space than their own family or direct neighbors. And she claims that it's that genre of novel that begins to build up a kind of larger empathy among um, French and also uh, others in the Enlightenment period around rights talk, and that that becomes really essential for people to understand what it feels for the suffering of strangers to come to matter as much as their own. I'd pick up on that insight in the ways in which I'm trying to think about how human rights become believable to a variety of American publics in the 1940s. And my interest is in particular in photography, um, reportage photography, things like Dorothea Lyons, migrant mother, uh, Walker Evans, a whole host of people who are making social suffering visible in particular kinds of ways at the same time that this new language of human rights is starting to emerge. So, for me, analytically, some really, really heavy ties back to the literature of the 18th century and how we might use that usefully to think about a more contemporary articulation of these kinds of
0: issues. Mm-hmm. I, I guess a question that I also had was, because human rights, at least by the 1940s, is speaking in the language of universalism, that is, these are attributes of every person, um, they, they they had to have some relationship with the other kind of universalism, which you see, and the only kind I know about is in the European context because I'm a Europeanist, and that is Christianity. Mm-hmm. That these things, Christianity is a universal religion. It doesn't just apply to a certain kind of person. It, it's everyone uh, is is a recipient of Christ's love who will accept it. And that came with uh, rights is not the, the language of Christianity, but can you talk a little bit about the did one supplant the other, or was there a relationship between the two, or that kind of
1: thing? No, I, I, one does not supplant the other, I don't think, but the, um, <clears throat> certainly not in the 1940s, but I think there is an entangled relationship between the two. Um, Sam Moyn has written in really interesting ways about the relationship between Christianity and conservatism, and rights talk in Europe immediately after World War II, where I saw it most directly in thinking about the American case during the war, is that there's a a major effort by you know what today we would call non-state actors but in the 40s nobody used that term at all Mm -hmm. um to get human rights in the united nations charter so a set of political actors and sort of again what we would call civil society actors are mobilizing in 1944 and 1945 to see that, that is that, in a way, the human rights could be sprinkled throughout the Charter. And it could be in hortatory sorts of ways, but it could be also in articles that would become more binding. Both the Catholic Church and various Protestant denominations in the United States are deeply involved in those efforts in 1944 and 1945. And some some kind of figures that you know you wouldn't necessarily guess would have been there. So you know, John Foster Dulles, who'd become Secretary of State, in the Eisenhower administration, is leading one of these efforts in 1944 and 1945 and and making some really powerful arguments about the necessity of having language about human rights in the United Nations Charter. If you think about how Dulles behaves as Secretary of State, where human rights weren't necessarily front and center in his mind as he was thinking about the Cold War, things change over a 10-year period for him. But in this earlier period, again, quite involved as a religious person, more than mm-hmm. a political leader. Mm-hmm. But Dallas isn't the only one. Again, just dozens of people who mm-hmm. are engaged on, on that front. Mm-hmm. In a later period, so I mean, if we want to jump into the 1970s, there, you know, Catholic, the Catholic Church, particularly liberation theology, solidarity movements that are emerging in both liberal Catholicism and in uh, liberal Protestant denominations. You know, the world of sort of solidarity and the world of human rights are not necessarily the same things, but often are overlapping Mm -hmm. around questions, particularly in Latin America and in Central America Mm -hmm. in that period of time. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, one sees it there as well.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking of an er earlier example even than that, than liberation theology, and that is the American Friends Service Committee. I know a little bit about them because I know some people who... They've even visited my house and things like this. Um, and it's quite yeah. a fascinating organization, I have to say. And they, they're—I don't exactly know the history of it, but it's from the 20s or 30s, isn't it? It's early.
1: It no, it is. It's it's absolutely early.
0: I mean, mm-hmm. there. You know, there's an
1: interesting question about what does it mean to talk about human rights and what does it mean to talk about humanitarianism, and yeah. how much are they intertwined and overlapping, right? So. American Friends Service, in a certain way, you'd think of in a kind of humanitarian zone. And I mean, what I know best about their work was 1948 in Palestine, Mm -hmm. when they're working very closely in refugee communities. But they're doing that kind of work in many places over time, in China in the 1920s. But some of that's rights work, some of that's humanitarian work, in the, you know, how academic um, boundaries come up quite quickly. So there is a history of humanitarianism and there is a history of human rights, and each side often feels as if they're quite different things. And, and one thing that I try to do in the book is actually to think about how they're emerging at the same time, whatever kind of differences in the two projects might occur, their approaches, their ways of talking about things, their ways of staking claims in the world, really are very similar, and that it's more useful to be kind of open ten about it and to think about a spectrum of this rather than to hive it off and say, oh, well, you know, the Quakers, they're doing humanitarianism. That doesn't really count in that story. I think you're right to want to try to bring to bring them in and think about how that can enrich a rights history story.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. So can you tell us the story of, and this may be too broad, the story of how the United Nations came to issue a Declaration of Human Rights?
1: Well, again, the kind of emergent canonical story about that is all focused around 1948. That's when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is passed by the General Assembly. And the conversations about how to build that declaration start in 1946. They're largely going on partially in New York and partially in Geneva. And it's a very international group of people who are doing it. Eleanor Roosevelt is chairing that committee, so it has you know a kind of American valence to it. But important French figures, René Casson, several figures from um, the Middle East, from China. It's it's a remarkably cosmopolitan group in some ways. But one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that there's a kind of prehistory to that as well. So there are four declarations of international human rights that are crafted during the period of the war itself. All of those are projects that are going on In the United States, one directly within the State Department, the other three within kind of international law groups. And they're not necessarily they're happening in the United States, but there's so many emigre scholars that are coming to the United States from Germany, from, you know, occupied Europe. So, again, a very cosmopolitan mixture of people in the end if you look at the crafting of those four statements there's a couple of things that are going on one is it's an expansion of a kind of rights lexicon so it's not just political and civil rights which in fact if you you know if you go back to the french declaration that's what it's about really you know the economic and social rights are not front and center in the ways in which those enlightenment declarations are written here now in the 1940s people thinking about can you make a set of national and international guarantees around economic and social rights. That all comes out in these conversations, wartime conversations as well. So uh, my argument would simply be that they're really, it's the wartime period that's critical in thinking about a couple of questions. One, how broad the rights lexicon is going to be? What's the relationship between the individual, the national, and the international? And that those very controversial questions in some ways get settled even before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights starts to be drafted in 1946 and 1947. Nobody knew at that point whether it was going to be a declaration or whether it was going to be a covenant. And you know that sounds like a kind of arcane distinction, but in truth, if it was a covenant, it would be legally binding. As a declaration, it's an aspirational statement. It's in the wartime period, there are huge debates about what kind of document it should be. Should it be aspirational? Should it be enshrined in international law? I think the drafters of the declaration hope for more than a declaration to begin with. But by 1948, the Cold War, which is not obviously on the horizon necessarily during World War II, is coming down with full force and it, it becomes almost impossible for them to move it beyond the kind of aspirational language of a declaration. It takes until the 1960s, in fact, for the International Covenant on Political and Civil Rights, the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, to be fully formed covenants at the United Nations that go out for ratification. Mm-hmm. So there's a long gap between the one and the other.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I find it kind of astounding that, uh, and I'm sure I'm just projecting backwards here to uh, the uh, American tradition of, I won't call it isolationism, but a desire to avoid what are they called foreign entanglements um, yes that, that we not only were a party to this but we kind of led the charge
1: well that's right it's it is very surprising and and then that's you know one of the things i think that i wanted to make I mean, visible in the project i think even more surprising to me Marshall, was the quotidian ways in which ordinary americans embraced the idea as something that might help them do political work back in the United States. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I talk about in the 40s chapters are a series of court cases in the late 1940s. They're cases brought by African American plaintiffs, by Japanese American plaintiffs, and a couple by Native American plaintiffs where they're making certain rights claims. So maybe it's about restrictive housing covenants. Maybe it's about inequalities in educational opportunities voting again a whole series of these claims and they go to court and they use constitutional arguments so it isn't as if they've abandoned the Constitution but they also start using international human rights law arguments as well so they'll go before a judge and they'll say you know this couple in Detroit lost their home because there was a restrictive rights only covenant on the home and they didn't know when they bought it. And so they're in court to try to turn that around. And they say that that's a problem because of the 14th amendment, but they also say that's a problem because the United States ratified the charter of the United Nations and that that charter, Article 55 and 56, provides certain individual guarantees to human rights. And as these cases move through the judiciary, judges are hearing some of these claims favorably. So at the state level, they're not ruling against solely on UN charter grounds, but in their opinions are mentioning that, yes, we were engaged in this project as the American state, as the American people, and that that is one of the reasons why sound public policy means that we have to think in non-discriminatory ways. Two of these cases go to the United States Supreme Court. They never rule on the international law question, right? The Supreme Court often allergic to that in their rulings. But several of the concurring opinions in those cases are, again, pointing to the charter, pointing to disengagement during the wartime period in human rights. Mm -hmm. So I found that just totally fascinating, right? You know, that a couple, African-American couple in the middle of Detroit, somehow they and their lawyers together come to an international human rights guarantee that can really help them right i mean that's that's engaged
0: yeah it does bespeak a kind of different mentality than we had today because you know, the united states is very hesitant to sign pretty much any international charter that's binding in any way so i mean that's for good or ill i'm just stating the fact of the yeah. matter yeah we don't we don't it, 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 and it, it, are those arguments still presented in Legal cases? I, I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, that that moment in meeting one, I mean, there's a, there's a huge kind of backlash in the early 1950s toward making those kinds of arguments. So there's a conservative senator from Ohio, his name is John Bricker, who... Yeah. Is y- y- upset, and as are a number of conservatives in the House and the Senate about exactly what you said—the notion that somehow foreign law could come in and contaminate, you know, the American system. And there are hearings that are held, and you know, they're really, and finally, the Eisenhower people say, you know, we're not going to put forward any more of these conventions because we're done if you'll just sort of, you know, leave us alone. And and so they do. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's an argument that is also wrapped up in McCarthyism, so that there's something about foreign law that's not just sinister, but it's also tarred as a kind of socialist or sort of communist, you know, project. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the reasons why it evaporates as a sort of domestic language is that you know, the NAACP, who are starting to use the language, you know, in the late 40s, and it seems to be doing some work for them. Now, it tars them in a kind of, you know, communist sort of way. And it just, it doesn't do the work anymore. So they mm-hmm. let it go. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they've got enough burdens, right? They don't need to fight that fight as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that really marks not just a kind of state disinterest in what's going on, but it, it marks a kind of civil society disinterest, too. You know, mm-hmm. that, that part doesn't come back later either. Different reasons why those choices are being made, and I, to me, more understandable on the civil society side. But nonetheless, the evacuation is happening at both levels.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I'm also very interested in the kind of uh, principled or reasoned objection to this kind of thing. Uh, on the part of some American thinkers. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, there there is some sense in saying that you, if you are a sovereign state, you don't really want your hands tied, even if it seems oh so sensible at time X. Like right now, it seems really good, but what will happen at a different time? Were there people that, that you know, had sort of, I, I don't want to say they were compelling arguments, but they said, you know, we really want to avoid this.
1: Well, you know, the the only place really in the world that a kind of robust transnational human rights machinery came into operation was in Europe. Mm -hmm. And in 1948, there's a European convention on human rights and it creates a court, but the court essentially remains non-functional until really the 1980s. And that has to do with a fear on the European side that, um, that court might be used by colonized peoples to bring Metropole to account mm-hmm. around colonialism. And so they just don't want to have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. But once the colonization is safely behind them, then the court does really start to come into operation, And it's quite amazing. So, you know, it, it's a transnational court. The idea is that if your rights have been violated in France and you've gone and exhausted everything through the highest court in France, then you can come before the European court and if a judgment is made for you the state needs to not only compensate you but also needs to change their law right so it, it, you know if you're thinking about transnational institutions actually really penetrating state sovereignty that has been happening in Europe from mm-hmm. the 1980s onwards but it's an anomaly and it's certainly not what's been happening in the United States yeah, I agree. Of at yeah. all yeah and so you know at the supreme court level there has tended to be a kind of debate between, you know, people in a kind of Scalia-like vein who essentially find foreign law abhorrent, right? And and some of that, the originalism and federalism, you know, that whole line of argument. And then a more pragmatic set of arguments on, you know, the more liberal side of the court, but Kennedy being a kind of swing figure in between, where in fact they're willing to use European court cases in thinking about how they might decide on certain points of law. So the Lawrence v. Texas decision about sodomy, um, you know, there's Kennedy writes that decision and he's writing in a number of European court cases that, again, he thinks are helpful to think with, never making the argument that that law is determinative for the United States, but that it's useful to think with. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of spectrum, I think, you know, at the highest court level around How that law might affect the ways in which the United States would think about particular rights issues.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, if I understand you correctly, and I probably don't, but the reason that this moment of popular enthusiasm, if we can call it that, for human rights talk in um, among the American I wanted to say intelligentsia among the American uh, Mm. uh, elite and also among uh, ordinary Americans. And is, and the reason for this is because of the cold war, because of uh, it's tainted by association with communism. Is that right?
1: The decline of interest in using the language, I think does have quite a good deal to do with the ramping up of the cold war Mm -hmm. that it, again, The United Nations, that sort of site of kind of, you know, the transnational as possibly having some kind of role in the ways in which world politics would work in an increasingly bipolar world, um, structurally, it isn't working. But just in language and ideological terms, it it gets essentially hived off as that's a socialist project, not necessarily a free world project at the UN sort of international level. Now, on the other hand, the administrations are deploying a kind of human rights language as they're fighting the cold. War, yeah. Yes, so I was right? going to ask about so, that. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're the place of freedom. The Soviet Union is the place of unfreedom, et cetera. So, you know, there's rights talk that's moving through all of that, but that's not happening again in any connection to this sort of global project that was beginning, you know, with, the UN Charter and, and the Universal Declaration—that's the project that stalls essentially, mm-hmm. um, really until the 1970s, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very interesting what you say because in criticism of the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 1960s, well, maybe not so much the 1950s, but the 1960s, it was—it was really in a much older language and it had to do with tyranny. I've studied this a little bit. They talked about Soviet mm-hmm. tyranny a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like it straight out of the 15th or 16th century. <laughs> it's not modern at all uh, that they were going to make you unfree they were going to enslave you in some way yeah it wasn't it wasn't yeah. spoken of in terms of a denial of specific human rights like you know it wasn't Look, they don't have freedom of property in the Soviet Union that's a violation of human rights they didn't speak like that and they are going to take yeah. everything you have that's what they're going to do um, so it is very interesting
1: but you know then you get into the 1970s and you get to a yeah. figure like Solzhenitsyn mm-hmm And so, there, you know, how Solzhenitsyn and who Solzhenitsyn is, as far as Americans are concerned, there really, I think, is a wide spectrum there. So, uh, for people who want to get the Cold War going again in the 1970s, they see Solzhenitsyn as a perfect Cold War warrior for them, Mm -hmm. you know, and at the 1976 uh, Republican Party. Um, convention, you know, there was a Solzhenitsyn plank and they were going to make him an honorary citizen of the United States. And and again, you know, that that was a vehicle for a kind of Cold War politics on, you know, for American liberals, for Democrats, I think he started to become a different sort of icon. I mean, certainly the Cold War was still there. It didn't go away. It isn't that it isn't, you know, a significant frame of meaning, but that a, a kind of human rights iconography gets imposed on him by a number of influential Americans. Mm-hmm. Now Solzhenitsyn himself is a whole different story, right? And Solzhenitsyn's <laughs> <a dissent laughs> yeah. and whatever is, so, you know, so this is all happening the, the without more, Solzhenitsyn's control Right. The, the
0: more you know about Solzhenitsyn, the less you actually like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I <guess.
1: laughs> yeah. but, but I think he becomes four <sighs> Americans who are beginning to think about a new kind of human rights politics in the 1970s I think he becomes incredibly important to them and Mm -hmm. they want to put a certain frame of meaning on who he is and what he's about.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask, Um, before we go right to this, the Russian context, which I think is very important in Soviet context, I wanted to talk to you a little bit because you know so much about Vietnam is, you know, I've been doing some research on Vietnam myself and particularly among protest movements. There were lots of talk of, of the rights of Vietnamese being violated by the Americans and imperialist powers in general. This was a, sort of, there was yes. a drumbeat on the left is that, you know, this was, uh, imperialism was about the violation of the rights of these people and so on and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Vietnam case, I think, is a really interesting one because there's certainly the language of anti-imperialism and rights that's coming into the ways in which the anti war protest movement, not just here, but all around the world, Yeah, all around, is, is around the world. About yeah.
0: the, the situation in
1: Vietnam. What I'm struck by, though, is how... Again, uh, the argument in the book is that in, in certain ways for Americans, human rights becomes dormant as a conception about how to frame problems until you get into the mid-1970s. Mm-hmm. So at the very, very height of the war and at the very, very height of the anti-war protest movement, in fact, a human rights frame as we would come to think of it today doesn't become a kind of fundamental framing device for people. Mm-hmm. The language of anti-imperialism and the language of human rights are somewhat different languages. Yeah. So if, for instance, you think about the Milai Massacre, if the Malai Massacre had occurred in the 90s or the 2000s, it, the, uh, the human rights frame would have been the frame, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way people would have come first to understand it. It was not. In the late 1960s, it's a different set of languages that people are using to understand those kinds of atrocities. Mm-hmm. So when I was meeting, I was meeting a lot of people who were involved in amnesty really early on. So amnesty, you know, it's founded in 1961 in London. It, there's an America, Amnesty USA, you know, it's founded in the 1960s too, but it doesn't really take off in the United States until the mid 70s and until the war is over. And so I was meeting some people who were really some of these early people who were kind of coming into the human rights movement, let's say, you know, again, mid-1970s, 74, 75. The number of those people who were anti-war activists is really, really striking. And when you talk to them, they kind of say the same thing, you know, that they didn't, they didn't think about amnesty during the work that they were doing against the war. Mm-hmm. But when that work was done, this project seemed like a natural thing to move to for them, but it started to give them a different set of political and moral vocabularies to think about problems in the world. So they see, on the one hand, a kind of natural movement from their protest work into the human rights movement, but they also see it as a kind of ideational and personal watershed in -hmm. the ways in which they think about social
0: problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean one of the things that I felt and this is just an impression of mine is that after Vietnam ended or after the collapse of the Saigon government these, some of these organizations immediately turned their attention to the North Vietnamese and what they were doing they didn't miss a yep. step <laughs> they, yep. they, they, they yep. were very consistent they're like okay now and especially with the boat people and I remember this very well because when I was in I don't know is it politically correct to call them boat I don't know what you call them but anyway when I was in high school and they came to my high school in 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 the in the, um, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, I remember reading about this, and 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 they were the the the, the left, to its credit, held the Vietnamese that the, the by then the Vietnamese to account for this.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's right, that's right. You know the Vietnamese as boat people. I, this person that the United Airlines dragged off the flight last <laughs> yeah. week that everybody yeah. was watching on the yeah. viral video. And initially, people were saying it was a he was a Chinese doctor. But it turns out he's Vietnamese, oh, is he? and he was, quote, quote a boat person. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. We went to yeah. my high
0: school. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. The, really? The, yeah, well, I don't know if we did or not, but I remember when this oh, was, oh, they were brought by really? Catholic relief organizations, and they were put in pub, public high schools. I mean, I went to a public high school, and they were, yeah. it was very strange to us, because this was in Kansas, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of people that didn't speak English around and they were really, they were really good at soccer. (laughs) I remember that they could play soccer and we couldn't, (laughs) Well,
1: you know, I don't know. I don't know in which way he came over, but again, this whole notion that like Americans aren't very good about realizing that it like, Asia isn't.
0: Just yeah, no, I an know an it's. An right. ethnicity,
1: that in fact, like China and Vietnam are different places. And well, right, it was one of my hobby horses. horses. The whole concept,
0: the whole concept of Asia, is just confused. It's just too big to. Mm. It's, it's too mm. much. You know, it's just too yeah. much. Asia. What is it could it possibly be? <laughs> right. <laughs> to say something right. that's Asian, it really doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so anyway, let's go to, to the 1970s now. What accounts for the rebirth of uh, the reinvigoration of rights right. talk? Uh, in the United States, well, really in the world in general in the 1970s?
1: Well, I mean, there the argument that I try to make is that there's an explosion of human rights talk in the 1970s and that in fact the United States gets their last. And to the extent that that story of has been told, and it hasn't been told in a very full form before, Carter is often seen as a critical figure in the United States for suddenly making human rights politics visible. You know, the inauguration address goes to human rights, and there is a human rights diplomacy that emerges You know, with certain problematics during the Carter administration as well. And and the claim that I want to make is simply that by the time you get to Carter, this is a reflection of a whole set of transformative processes globally, and that those come into the United States as a kind of borrowed language that then become. You know, vernacularized in an American concept, just as human rights becomes vernacularized in a Brazilian context or a Soviet context or so that we're part of a set of transnational processes there. It's not the exceptionalism of the United States that helps to explain why human rights comes back and the kind of character of human rights in the Mm -hmm. United States. But what's different in the United States than what's happening almost every place else in the world in the 1970s is elsewhere human rights becomes a language to talk about problems at home in the united states in the 1940s it was a language to talk about problems at home but also to talk about problems that were happening out in the world when it comes back in the united states in the 1970s it's always about what's happening someplace else yeah human rights does not come back as a language that seems to be generative for social movements in the 1970s so African-Americans do not re-embrace human rights. The labor movement does not really embrace human rights. Feminism does not really embrace human rights in the 1970s. Those who see themselves as human rights campaigners and human rights actors, it's about problems someplace else, Mm -hmm. whether those are in Latin America, whether they're in Asia, whether they're in the Soviet East. So it, it comes back, again, against a larger set of global processes, but the American vernacular of that is it, is as an outward facing language rather than an inward facing language,
0: yeah, and that's completely consistent with my memory of it too uh again the, so so i I mean I went to a high school where there was busing, and um although the generally racial relations were really good, there were race riots in my high school, and you know there were problems we never spoke about no. it in terms of this, but what I do remember is reading in Time magazine about Jews who wanted to emigrate from the Soviet Union, this is before I had anything to do with Mm -hmm. Russia at all, who wanted to emigrate Mm -hmm. from the Soviet Union and the Soviets were using this as a kind of political lever. Like they would let certain numbers of them out and so on and so forth. And that this was a violation of their human rights. And there was even a uh, a set of accords that was later signed, uh, the Helsinki Accords, and there was a, another of a foundation run by this guy Sakharov. And they they, they right. wanted her the Hels- This is how I learned about human rights, was about yeah. these people yeah, that yeah. wanted to immigrate to Israel and <laughs> couldn't do it. <laughs> I think that's how I learned about Israel, too, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but that was the only context in which I understood anybody's human rights to be violated, were these specific religious people who wanted to go <laughs> someplace else and the Soviets wouldn't let them.
1: And the case and the case of Soviet Jews is really interesting in that period of time, because in part, that is about the dynamics of a continuing Cold War. Yeah, that is also about the beginnings of a kind of reinvigorated global human rights movement, of which they become important objects in that period of time. And that's I mean, to come back to your earlier question about religion. I mean, there's all kinds of religious valences around that set of issues particularly in the United States around evangelicals, because I I don't talk about this as much as I really should in the book, but fortunately Melanie Melanie McAllister is writing the book that will deal with all of this. But thinking about where, I mean, global evangelicals uh, by the 1990s have firmly embraced human rights. Where does that come from? And what she does is say, actually you've got to be thinking about the sixties and the 1970s to think about where that comes from and Soviet Jewry is part of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it. It, it did make it very uh, well. It was very thoroughly covered by the American press if it made it to Kansas. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, mm-hmm. if it's covered by the American press, it probably makes it out elsewhere. But that was the first time I ever learned of anybody's anybody had any human rights or whether they were being violated or not. And it seemed to me, as an American, well, obviously, if you, you know, to me, it was like, well, if you want to if you want to leave your country, you should be able to leave your country. Any American can do that, right? If you want to practice your religion, you can do that, right? right? I mean, that's right. obvious. I mean, even if it isn't obvious. It's obvious if you see what I mean, and that's sort of like you know. But do you? But
1: do you remember in the 1970s that suddenly Brazil, Chile, Argentina—that you know those kinds of human rights violations? No, I, d- I
0: don't really you know. Don't. I, you don't. I, I, you I don't, don't really remember uh-huh. that very well. No, I was. But m- I mostly remember playing a lot of basketball personally. And reading mm. Time Magazine, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit it. I you know I was studying sports very intensively, but I did read Time Magazine, so that's how I learned about yeah. that. But then you know, I mean, I went into Soviet studies when I was. An undergraduate, and I learned a lot more about this. And also, you know, the thing about it was, even in Kansas, you could meet people uh, it, Jews who knew about refuseniks, and they would come and talk. And you know, this is even in Kansas. You know, and this, these people have—I mean—they really had a nice network to get the word out about the their co-religionists who were whose human rights were being oppressed if they were making it to mm-hmm. Wichita, Kansas, mm-hmm. which they did. So I, yep. it was yep. a, and then and you know, then as you say. Uh, you know, one of these people wins the Nobel Prize and then Solzhenitsyn, and he becomes an international right. star. Uh, right. For, <laughs> so, and, and and really becomes kind of the face of this. And, and uh, yep.
1: yeah. I, I, but, but, and somebody like, you know, somebody like Sakharov, so I, I think that the other thing that's going on in the United States in the 1970s, and again, more important, I think, perhaps, than, you know, thinking about carter human rights diplomacy, is that Human rights starts to become a part of professional practice for American scientists, for Mm -hmm. a whole variety of American professionals. And for scientists, Sakharov is key. You know, the fact that you would, in a kind of Amnesty International-like way, adopt a Soviet dissident who was doing the same kinds of scientific work that you did Mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. And there are all these fights and debates in professional organizations, particularly you know, scientific organizations, but can we do that as scientists? Mm-hmm. I mean, scientists shouldn't have a politics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the argument. And so people really had to kind of break down that fourth wall to say, yes, in fact, an American Scientific Association can take a stand against human rights violations in one place or the other in the world. And I think that's happening with lawyers, that's happening with, um, eventually it's happening with people in you know, business as well, that it just, human rights gets baked into what it means to be a professional person in the United States. And it seems to me that once that happens, and again, all about violations that are happening outside of the United States, but once that happens, it gives a kind of permanency to a sort of human rights sensibility in the United States, which yeah. I think persists
0: to the present day. Yeah, you 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 may be right, but I I I, I, if I remember that when I joined the AHA, which the American Historical Association a long time, they were right. they were designating places nuclear free zones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that moment's passed. I'm not sure. Maybe they still designate places nuclear free zones, but we haven't talked about something that's very important in your book and very important to the history of this because I think these organizations are largely responsible for the, the, the continued focus on civil rights, and that is NGOs of every Stripe and kind, and I don't know, it's it's incredible how many of them there are. Can you talk a little bit about that history?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, that explosion really comes in the 1970s. And again, it's not to say that there aren't non-state actors out in the world before that period of time, but it's just an exponential increase in that kind of actor in both domestic and international politics. And again, here I think it's really important to put the human rights issue in conversation and in context with other emergent interest areas too. So it's happening in human rights, it's happening in the humanitarianism world, humanitarianism, and kinds of organizations that are working as humanitarian actors in some ways fundamentally transformed in the 1970s, with Médecins Sans Frontières being, you know, the, the kind yeah. of preeminent group in that, but also around environmentalism as well. Mm-hmm. So. You know those three human rights, humanitarianism, environmentalism emerging simultaneously as new national and global concerns in the 1970s and then its non-state actors of a variety of sorts who become increasingly powerful, I think, in the ways in which at least advocacy politics is working from that period onward.
0: yeah, I don't mean to be cynical about it but it's, and maybe I missed this in the book, but was there some change in the tax Code in the United States that suddenly allowed this incredible proliferation of NGOs. I mean, they're, they're, all of a sudden, just boom, there mm. they were. Is there any? Well, the, the, <laughs> no. The 50, the five hundred one
1: c c three. Yeah, is, but, yeah. We're well, a five. That, the NewBooks Network
0: is a five hundred one c three.
1: Yes, that is doing a lot of enabling in this period of yeah. time. But again, it's it's not just an American phenomenon. I mean, this is a global explosion in these kinds of groups. And I think, you know, in a more profound way, a kind of different way in which people are talking in the public sphere about social problems of one sort or another. I mean, if you think about, you know, the 1950s as kind of, the the expert was the person that you would come to. John Kenneth Galbraith would tell you about economics right. and Robert Oppenheimer would tell you about nuclear war. Now, increasingly, it's a kind of collectivity connected to, you know, it's human rights watch, not mm-hmm. necessarily a person who has the power and authority to make those kinds of statements. That's a really different way of engaging in um, whether it's national or global politics, I think that it's, it's collectivities that speak that have a kind of authority that have a kind of power and who also are able to speak, not just in kind of like rational actor, bureaucratic, you know, um, statistical kinds of terms, but that increasingly the experiential is seen as just as believable. Yeah. So you yeah. don't just make a claim about this many people were tortured. You do that too, but you also want to put in front of people a sense that this was the experience of this tortured victim, this was the experience of that tortured victim. Mm-hmm. A- a- and that seems to me about a kind of global shift in Holocaust memory that, again, also begins in the 1970s mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. The notion of the testimonial, the notion of public witness, all of that, right, I think, is happening in In that kind of larger sphere, too, and that's affecting how yeah. it is these groups represent themselves and how people find their claims believable they're not
0: yeah well there is a, a one of the great i would say the benefits of, of this burst of NGO activity and the money that flows to it is there are these wonderful reports that come out every year on, you know, the annual index of journalistic freedom or the annual index of torture yep. throughout the world or the annual index. Yep. When I used to work at a magazine in Washington and we we relied very heavily on these reports for what we said about the yep. world. And some of them are really just terrific work. And and they're good employment for social scientists. <laughs> <laughs>
1: They are indeed, but you know, one like the the kind of the kind of canonical human rights report genre is the country report. Yep, that's right. right. That's, that's exactly right. right. So, and I the mean, CIA is, country I mean, report, so, we should
0: say. Yeah.
1: Well, no, I mean the State Department's. Human Aren't they CIA?
0: Right. I thought the CIA produced them. No, is it, is it the no, State no, no, Department? No, no, no. Well, I'm wrong. That's yeah, sorry. Yeah, State Department and country report. I'm wrong.
1: Interestingly enough, I mean, you know, and there have been problems with those country reports every time. So I don't yeah. want to like overpower okay. them, but. On the other hand, every year that the country reports come out from the State Department, the Secretary of State has presented it in a public ceremony. This year, for the first time ever, the current Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, was not able to be present Hmm. for the ceremony that the country report was produced from. So if you're trying to think about, uh, there there are many ways to think about the era of Trump as problematic for human rights, but that, that you don't show. For that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And you yeah. did show for it, no matter how complicated your own administration politics were about human rights, is yeah. quite striking.
0: Well, yeah. as, you, as you say about the 40s, so it is with the 70s, it passed. Why did it pass?
1: Well, it passes. I, 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 I'm not so sure it passes, okay. in a way. I mean, <laughs> I think at, there are two levels that one can think about this at. If you're, if you're thinking about it in terms of how human rights is represented by the American state, I don't know that it passes, but it becomes increasingly problematic over time. And the reticence to, as you said, to embrace new covenants and conventions that everybody else in the world seems to be able to embrace, and ratify, you know, that that continues apace, right? And, and And hasn't radically changed over time. I believe that the kind of civil society group of Americans who began to identify human rights as a set of concerns about things that happen outside of American shores, I, I think that remains as robust today as it, you know, as it was 70s, 80s. I, I think that's only okay. developed and gone deeper over time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it depends on where you look in mm-hmm. some ways. But if you look solely at the state level, you're quite right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to spend a, just a couple of minutes before we conclude talking about... um some of the pitfalls of human rights talk, and uh, particularly in, in, in the current international political environment. Um, I'm thinking particularly about uh, the way it runs up against, uh, well, to specific, uh, a specific example would be um, religious traditions. So something like, uh, I was just reading about a case of a doctor who was, I think it was in Minnesota or someplace, who was performing female circumcisions in the United States, Muslim doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, what, I, and, then, and then, of course, in the context of the war on terror, I mean, it's one thing to say you shouldn't torture anyone until you think that you should. And then maybe it might work. Uh, of course, we have some evidence that it doesn't. But I guess I just wonder. It, I, I, I guess I just wonder. How we should think about these things now, because I mean, it, well, one of the things you just mentioned, not, not to go on for too long, is, is that yeah, the United States doesn't sign on to these things like everybody else does. But one might e- easily argue, I mean, one might sensibly argue, the United States isn't like every place else.
1: Yeah, but you could argue that about France. You, right? you could, uh, yeah, you definitely like. could. And I think the French, <laughs> I think
0: the French may be arguing <laughs> that right now. <laughs> everybody, <laughs> yeah, everybody's arguing that. Well, the British argued that. Yeah. Yeah, no,
1: I, I I hear what you're saying, Moshe. I I think that I, I when I when people are talking around those kinds of issues, and again, whether it's a sin or whether it's a sick language in the ways it's actually deployed in the world, that, that those are useful distinctions to be talking about. And, and yes, there's a certain amount of um, you know, I mean, practice does not follow necessarily the way in which people are are, are talking in more rhetorical terms. And that there's always been a kind of selectivity and unevenness in terms of what kinds of human rights problems in what kinds of places went, right? So, you know, even in the 1970s, where I'd argue that there was a kind of fluorescence of this, some places were identified as places that had human rights problems, and others were completely ignored, Mm -hmm. right? So even among advocates, there's a sort of sense of unevenness in, in in, in what's you know, how that's being done. But I think, you know, on, on the other hand, it's it's a kind of utopian notion that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights would suddenly govern the ways in which international and state politics work, right? So that at, at, at what level do you start to talk about, is it a work in progress towards something that may never actually achieve, you know, the largest aim? Or is the quotidian process of what does happen still a series of productive interventions in the world. So that's one side of it. The other side of it that you're getting at is also, you know, complex about rights. Like, how do you, how do you adjudicate between, is, if there's a set of cultural values on one hand, and there's a more, quote, universalized sense of rights on the other hand, what happens when you bring those into conversation with mm-hmm. one another? Are, is rights talk inherently a kind of Euro-American sensibility about the ways in which the world should work? Therefore, you move into other cultural realms. People think about rights in a different sort of way. And again, I tend to think that when that language is deployed by the state, like when the Chinese state tells me that, well, there really are you know, Asian human values, I don't really believe that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I'm on the ground working with a Chinese human rights organization who says in this local context, this is going to be a really complicated thing and it's got to be thought about in sensitive ways. That makes total sense to me, right? So it's, I think part of it is the sincerity by which people are going into that. Is it a polemical project or is it really being engaged in how do you begin to think about a complicated set of problems on the ground? Where is culture in that? Where is the human rights language in that? And how do you move forward in a productive way rather than in a kind of, you know, idealized sort of
0: rhetorical fight? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a very, well, I really like the way you put it. I can't recapitulate it right now. But, you know, these are aspirations and, and I think they should be treated as such. These are general statements mm-hmm. of principle. We shouldn't let them guide our foreign policy, for example. I think everybody would agree on that because we'd be at war all the time and we don't want that. We have to live with, um. well, we have to live with ourselves and we're violating them here. And we have to live with other people, and they're violating them there. But, so, but yeah. you know, when
1: you when you suddenly have an American president who says that torture is okay, when you have an American president who has welcomed in the president of Egypt, who is violating people's human rights, right and left in Egypt, and saying great job, when you've got the United States not showing up at the Inter American Commission on Human Rights where the Americans have always showed up because the topic is about uh, emergency detentions, uh, you know, I mean, I. I think in some ways, this may not be a particularly good moment for the American state of human rights, but I I think it's entirely possible that human rights will become a more resonant language for those who are engaged in The resistance against the administration because, you know, because of the sort of outrages that that appear on an almost daily basis. I mean, American airports that are turned into sites of detention over a weekend. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, where's the line between human rights happening someplace out there or
0: happening? I I see what you mean. I mean, a a person that I was talking to a person and he says the Trump administration is about remembering. And not particularly proposing, but remembering that the United States is a country and not a project, and I think that that's mm-hmm. kind of the way he mm-hmm. thinks about things. Mm-hmm. So not not so much American exceptionalism. We're a country, and we're a country that serves <laughs> our citizens. I think that's the way he thinks about it. And and, and, and I'll t- I take your I take your meaning. I absolutely do. Do you think this is just a sort of swinging of the pendulum? Then are we going to go? This is a moment, and then we'll swing back and. Because uh, Obama was a very internationalist president. Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, if you talk to, I, I have many friends on the left who just can't stand right, the guy. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a hypocrite. But is it just uh, sort of the normal to and fro and ebb and flow of these kinds of things in the United States?
1: I think a lot of people right now are trying to figure out whether, you know, the Trump presidency is a fundamental break or whether it's just what you say you know it's rolled this way and then it's going to roll that way if you believe that it's a fundamental break then y- y- you can't do it in those terms yeah. right if it's just you know difference in kind or degree you know that's a different it's a different sort of thing and when you're living through a when, yeah, you're living through history right and, and how do you how do you step back and decide whether it is or it isn't i mean yeah. what, what i think becomes very confusing for me is you know so i'm at the university of chicago uh, former President Barack Obama lives just a few blocks from where I teach. I mean, we we we, we have a connection to the former president in right. certain ways. And I remember in 2008, uh, so many of us being in Grant Park in Chicago and believing that his election had fundamentally changed the way in which American politics would work.
0: Yeah. Like
1: That night in Grand Park, it was inconceivable to imagine that what's just happened could happen. Yeah. It was just done, I think, in many people's minds. And now it's not, you know, and, and so what do you, you know, how do you think that?
0: Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I,
1: I, It's very hard.
0: I think the older I get, the less I see fundamental breaks. But I recognize completely that it's very difficult to recognize them. If we could, then I think the world would be a very different place. I don't think we can recognize them very well at all. I I really, it's very hard to say. I mean, one of the things, I, I'll just, this is sort of uh, off topic a little bit, but when the reaction to Trump being elected reminded me a lot of the reaction people had in 1980 when Reagan was elected. And you know what? The world did not end. I guess I would say is I'm betting not fundamental break, but that's just me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) From from my lips to God's ears, as they say. (laughs) We'll, We'll see exactly what happens. So, Mark, it's been lovely talking to you again. I get to write another book. We can have another hour conversation, at least I hope. This is just so, it's so great to talk to you. Um, We've been talking to Mark Bradley about his book, The World Reimagined Americans and Human Rights in the 20th Century. Mark, let me ask the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: Um, Two things. Uh, One is, I've just signed on to be the general editor for a full, four-volume Cambridge history of America in the world. Uh-huh. So we're going to do four volumes going back to the 1500s up to the present wow. day. And this new field, you know, I mean, American diplomatic history has morphed into something that we now call America in the yeah. world. It's a much more expansive way of thinking about the field. And this will really be, I think, the first place that we're going to be putting together 130 contributors, some of the really key players wow. in the way the field has transformed, and trying to think when we're all together over four volumes, how do we understand the world differently? Maybe a little bit better than we did, you know, 20 so. years ago. Yeah, we'll, so. we'll see. Yeah, yeah. So that, and for myself, I'm I'm really keen on a, a project that I guess I'm calling now a kind of intellectual history of the global South. And so trying to oh, cool. think back yeah. really into the the sort of period of high imperialism and then to the present to think about how how that way of thinking about it's not, you know, we, we went from a colonized world to a third world to a global south. And, and what, what are those? Uh-huh. How do we think about it if we are trying to look at genealogies for what the global south actually means in the world?
0: Uh-huh. Well, those are great projects. Um, and I wish you luck on both of them. Thanks. Absolutely.
1: Thanks. And thank you so much for having me. It was, it was just a pleasure
0: to talk. Absolutely. My pleasure. Let me say again that we've been talking with Mark Bradley about the world reimagined Americans and human rights in the 20th century. I'm Marshall Pell. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network. And thank you very much for listening in. And I hope to talk to you soon.